Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Lamar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Well, you've been continued your globetrotting ways. Last week, you were up uh, in Boston um, and New York and uh, New Haven, I suppose. Um, and with good reason, because with the Supreme Court oral arguments coming up on the 14th Amendment, Section 3, lots of people are interested. And in fact, you participated in a debate at the Harvard Law School um, the other day on this subject. So what was the, uh, was, was this just a, a uh, spontaneous thing or was it part of a, like a speaker series? What was the occasion? And to be totally precise to our friends at that great university up north, technically, I guess they would remind us it's Cambridge, not Boston. It's in greater Boston. And yes, I was invited by my dear friend, the dean of the Harvard Law School, John Manning, to participate in a series that they have. It's called the Rappaport series that is designed to model vigorous, full, and civil discourse for university members. So I debated, in effect, one-on-one um, -on -one with a Harvard professor, Jeannie Sook Gerson, moderating the former Attorney General of the United States, Michael Mukasey. It was about an hour-long debate the room was packed. There were about 550 mainly students and, and professors in the room. And I'm told there were another 500 plus alums and others who were listening to the event and, and viewing it by a kind of a video, live video feed. They have put this up on the internet, Andy, on YouTube. And in fact, um, that's going to be relevant to what we do today because you've done your usual magic. But audience members can hear the whole thing. It lasts less than an hour. And it's a very vigorous and full and I hope civil debate between the two of us about the Trump v. Anderson case, the Colorado ballot access case, in which General Mukasey has filed an amicus brief He's a former Attorney General of the United States, along with former Attorneys General Bill Barr and Ed Meese, and some very distinguished, couple of very distinguished scholars whom I count as, as personal friends, Gary Lawson and Steve Calabresi. So they have a brief basically in favor of Trump and our, an amicus brief. And our audience, of course, knows that uh, Vic and I, aided by um, you and Chris Duggan and my in, intrepid team of Yale Law student uh, researchers, have an amicus brief on the other side. Yeah, although, of course, technically we're not on the other side, where our brief is in favor of neither party that, uh, from that a technical correct. point of view. Um, Thank you for that correction. You're mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Okay, but I think that uh, in terms of what outcome we might personally advocate, it would be, as you say, we, we think that Trump should be disqualified from the, from the ballot. And, and one reason I'm saying on the other side, and I didn't say it before, is Colorado has actually filed its brief in the case, which it hadn't before, before Vic and I filed the thing. So we, we couldn't quite actually be utterly clear that we were in support of, of one side when we didn't even have that side's brief to the court. But mm -hmm. now that we do, we're basically in support of Colorado on, on most of the main propositions. Okay, so so let's talk about the purpose of this episode today. So we're going to play you some clips from the uh, from the debate. So why are we going to do that? I mean, because in some ways, uh, you know, Akil, what you say in, in the debate is perhaps a, 
a, a rehash of things that we've said before and, and really a very abridged um, rehash. I think, you know, we've gone into much greater detail um, and you know, elaborated more arguments uh, on the various topics that came up. Um, so why do it again? And I, and I think the reason is to, to give our audience a couple of reasons. One is to give our audience a chance to hear some of the arguments on the other side that come in, in direct response or that challenge, you know, things that, that you say. Um, and then also, I think we want to address a little bit of a, perhaps a shortcoming in the format of the debate that, that by its nature, it was brief. It, re- it wasn't quite an hour. It was actually only 50 minutes and maybe 10 minutes of that are, were introductions. So that's pretty brief. And, and speaking of brief, I mean, when you look at our brief, you know, we have the main section and then we have 20 questions. So the point is there are a lot of issues um, in this case, and it's very difficult. Even our brief, we had difficulty, you know, doing justice to all the questions. That's why we adopted this 20-question format to kind of give snappy answers and then maybe refer or cite, you know, other things that can give you more information on it. Well, that wasn't really available in the debate. And so we want to do justice to these questions and to General Mukasey's answers by taking them seriously and, and taking them on and, and elaborating on them. Now, to our audience, maybe that seems a little unfair, okay? In other words, well, <coughs> General Mukasey operated under the same limitations, and now we're going to expound on what he said. Well, what about him? Well, so I would say that to be fair, we hereby you know, offer General Mukasey an opportunity to come on next week, which will still be before the oral argument, and if he wants to respond um, to things that we've said, we'll give him as much time as he wants within our you know, format of the of the podcast, which is quite a lot of time uh, to to respond. And if he so, if he wants to, he can have that opportunity. I think that's the best we can do um, as far as being fair. And really, we're being fair to him in another way, which is we're taking his arguments seriously, and we're you know we're going to uh, elaborate on them. We're going to play the clips, and you're going to hear him in his own voice. And Andy, I think we can do even better. We'll invite him to come on next week if he's so inclined. But even thereafter, the Supreme Court's not going to decide the case immediately. And even if they did, the, you know, you're allowed to debate, you know, already decided cases. So anytime he mm-hmm. wants to come on and elaborate, and our audience isn't just hearing someone on the from the other side. You're hearing a former Attorney General of the United States who had been a very distinguished federal judge before that, and is a, a prominent partner at a major big law firm in New York City. And in this brief, to repeat, he's joined by two other attorney, former attorneys general of the United States, William Barr, Ed Meese, and some prominent academics, Steve Calabresi and Gary Lawson. So we're going to hear from a very, not just someone on the other side, but, but among the most distinguished persons on the other side. We want our audience to hear the best arguments on each side, and then they can decide for themselves. Now, just to give you a little preview, it's not just the debate that we're going to discuss, but also in part uh, some aspects of their brief, because, you know, just like Akil says again and again in the debate, read our brief, read our brief, presumably that the, the brief is where you have an opportunity to look it over and refine your arguments and be very careful about what you, you put forth. And so, therefore, we're paying respect to him by taking by looking at his brief. It's not disrespectful because, you know, again, you had limited time during the debate. So, now in that brief, we did find something which we take significant issue with, which we think actually 
might call into question the argument, a significant part of the argument. So how would you characterize um, without, we'll get into it after we do the clips, but just, you know, why are we, why are we calling attention to this right now? I mean, is this just a gotcha that we, that we're doing, that we're pointing out? If it were a gotcha, I could have done it in front of hundreds of people live and I was ready to do it. In the end, I decided not to because there really wasn't, you know, a lot of time to, to respond. But by the end of this podcast episode, Andy, we're going to break news. I'm going to identify in the next hour with you, Andy, a huge false statement, uh, an egregious error that is not only you know, a real problem in its own right, but actually calls into question, frankly, a lot of, to be use a slightly harsh word, the, the competence of the brief as a whole. It, it, the mistake is so egregious, so almost discrediting and disqualifying were it not for you know, the very distinguished nature of the authors of this brief as to be astonishing. It may very well, I think this will be news, um, and I think probably the generals and the professors will want to alert the court that there is this egregious mistake in their brief, but we don't want to do a gotcha. I want to use this because this could, this can happen, maybe if not to anyone, to almost everyone, and, and it can happen to almost anyone because originalism is a very hard thing to do, especially under certain constraints of, of this case. And we're going to use this egregious error to talk a little bit more about our constitutional ecosystem, about the nature of originalism, about where professors fit into that ecosystem and, and judges and justices and lawyers and amicus brief writers, senior partners, and the like. Yeah, I think the reason that we're we're calling attention to it, and you mentioned one just now, which is that it it ha- it provides fodder for an interesting overall discussion about originalism and things like that. But also, we wouldn't call attention to it if it was just a typo or or yeah. you know something like that. Or but rather, it actually invalidates one might say a major argument that they make. It yeah. does. It calls into question bluntly whether they really are kind of masters of the relevant material. Mm-hmm. I guess that I guess then you would say that the court has to decide. It's got a hundred amicus briefs or whatever. It has to decide which ones to take seriously and spend their time on, and perhaps it might be relevant to that consideration. Um, right. Okay. I mean, this is not not personal, you know, at all. Uh, not at all. And and again, I had the opportunity to play this card very dramatically um, in a way that would have been embarrassing, frankly, to. Michael Mukasey, and I chose not to do it in that context because we have more time here to kind of explain what the significance of the gaffe is and how it should be relevant to lawyers, to judges and justices, and to people more generally, our audience trying to figure out what is this thing called originalism and, and isn't it really a problem that some of our you know best lawyers are prone to, to get pretty significant things wrong, at least sometimes, when dealing with stuff that happened a long time ago. All right, so let's get to it. We're going to play clips, and they're clips on arguments that we made in the main part of the brief. So the, if you just to remind our audience, and the brief is up on the website, and it's up on the Supreme Court website, so it's very easy to access. And 
In the last couple of episodes, we've discussed the structure of the brief, which is that we make main arguments and then we have our little 20 questions that deal with many of the other issues in the case. The truth is that there really were only five questions in the debate. And the fifth one is this business about, is the president an officer? And we've beaten that to death. So we're not, and that's not in the main part of our brief. So we're we're not going to play that one. The four arguments have to do with is the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment self-executing? That is, does it operate in the absence of a congressional statute? What about our proposed 50-state solution? Can states have different standards for how they uh, judge ballot access and whether they, uh, when they assess whether the 14th Amendment Section 3 applies to a particular uh, candidate? Can they have their own methods of doing so? Can Maine have the Secretary of State do this, whereas Colorado has a district court conducting a hearing? Is that okay? Was this an insurrection, or was it a mere disturbance or something that falls short of the terms of, of Section 3? And finally, where do over overriding concerns possibly of democracy uh, enter into our thinking on this. So so those are the four main arguments that we dealt with in the first part of the brief. And as it turns out, we had four uh, questions on that. So let's start off with a question about self-execution. And we have Professor Jeannie Suk-Gerson, who I will remind everyone is an alumna of Jonathan Edwards College at Yale University. Um, here we go with this uh, with this question. This other big debate about whether whether even if it does apply to a president or a former president, um, whether Section Three is self-executing, and does and some people say, well, if Congress hasn't acted or authorized states to disqualify candidates under Section Three, then then that can happen. Um, so, um, Michael, why don't we start with you? There was legislation passed uh, in 1870 um, to enforce uh, Section 3. Um, There was a civil aspect to it and a criminal aspect to it. Um, So Congress did what it is now claimed it was unnecessary for them to do. They passed legislation authorizing enforcement of Section 3. Um, The civil part was taken off the books, um, I believe, 20 or 25 years afterwards. Um, the criminal portion remains on the books today as Title 18, Section 2383, the, the insurrection statute. Um, so Congress did believe that, um, uh, that that enforcement was necessary. There was, in fact, um, a case, uh, again, decided by somebody who I'm sure is going to get be criticized, Chief Justice Chase, um, who wrote that, um, that it was not um, self-enforcing, um, and uh, Congress acted to remedy that, I guess, uh, by by passing by passing legislation. So, Akil, I'm sure we could go the whole hour on on this issue. Why don't we get you your Thank view you. on whether this Section Three is self-executing? This is a big issue, and uh, my side could easily lose on this issue. I don't think yeah. they'll lose on the other on officer and office. So, this is an important issue on self-executing. Four or five thoughts. One, 
Um, it's not how we generally think about the rest of the, uh, the 14th Amendment even. We don't need a congressional statute to enforce racial equality in Brown versus Board of Education or incorporation of the Bill of Rights in dozens of cases or the right of appointed counsel in um, Gideon versus Wainwright um, uh, or the rights of guns, uh, for that matter, if you're on the conservative side. So it's not how we generally think about um, the, the Constitution and, and self-execution. Two. Um, the um, Chase on circuit did say, oh, it, it's not self-executing. Only problem is he said in another case involving Jeff Davis that it is self-executing, and he ties himself into knots and, and says a bunch of contradictory things. But here's what you do need to know. Chase opposed 14th Amendment Section 3 when it was pending, actually, um, and is running for president. And uh, even while he's on the Supreme Court, yeah, they did that back then. Um, and so. Whom should you pay more attention to? The people that the American people picked, you know, Ulysses S. Grant, because both Grant and Chase want to be president. And right at the time that the people are adopting the 14th Amendment, they pick Grant over Chase, and Grant supported 14th Amendment Section 3 when it's pending, and enforced itself executingly um, through, um, in Virginia uh, under military reconstruction, um, in um, uh, uh, Georgia and other places, so did, uh, through William Tecumseh Sherman and Brevet um, uh, Major General uh, Canby, a guy named Terry and others. Here's what I want you to do, please. Read the briefs. Read my friend Michael's brief, and read our amicus brief, because, oh, we've got the goods on all this stuff. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's a lot of history that, you can, that we can debate about, but... They did does it. it. It's does not it, just history. Does, they're, they're enforcing it without a congressional statute. Immediately, actually, senators say, the moment, this is the word, the moment the 14th Amendment is ratified, it will actually oust people who are already in office in violation of Section 3. Okay, so that's the exchange. Uh, your analysis, Akil. Just by way of reminder to our audience, some things require a congressional statute. Putting someone in prison under federal law requires a federal statute passed by Congress. Federal courts can't do that on their own. It's a landmark ruling, a case called Hud United States versus Hudson and Goodwin from about 1812 or so. So yes, if you want to enforce Section 3 with criminal sanctions by saying, for example, if you certify someone for office um, knowing that they're in violation of Section 3, you can be criminally punished or something like that, that you need a congressional statute for. But for other stuff, no, you don't need a congressional statute. And my big argument is that's not how we enforce the rest of the 14th Amendment. Rick Pildes made this point. We talked about this in a, in a previous episode, saying that's not how we think about uh, other parts even of the 14th Amendment. And I mentioned some of them. Racial segregation, the right of appointed counsel, um, right to have guns, incorporation of the Bill of Rights, and many, many other examples. Um, so I did notice that General Mukasey didn't really respond to your argument about the fact that they did it. I mean, you, you were quite yeah. you were quite uh, emphatic about that that they that they did it, um, right. and and uh, so and again, no one is disputing. I think that Congress has has power, <laughs> opposed to the power. Um, Congress has power to pass enforcing legislation. No, obviously Section Five says that, um, but it, the question is. Is it required? So the fact that they passed a statute, I don't see how that's evidence that it's not self-executing. 
Um, Andy, you're you're a scientist, and you're actually seeing this asymmetric. If they if they did it without a statute, that's proof that you can do it without a statute. If they passed a statute, that's not proof that they had to pass a statute. Maybe the statute was belt and suspenders, you know, out of an abundance of caution. And part of what they did actually did require a statute, but that's the criminal punishment part. But that's because there's a long-standing case from 1812, a Marshall Court opinion called United States versus Hudson and Goodwin that establishes that. No federal criminal punishment without a federal statutory enactment. And I mean, I don't know the legislative history of the of that statute, but if one just thinks about it from congressional point of view, there's a lot of people in the South that can run for uh, for different offices that might be disqualified, thousands, as you say. And do we really want each one of these to be litigated? So it's it's almost like a health insurance company that denies a whole bunch of claims on the theory that not all of them will be protested, that some people will just accept the denial and the, and the health insurance company will make more money as a result. So here, um, in, yes, let's assume that, that Section 3 is self-executing and and that people are getting thrown off the ballot, but that that suggests that people are running, okay, uh, if they're getting thrown off the ballot. So people are running um, even though they're disqualified, and perhaps you know the, it'll be litigated, perhaps it won't be. Whereas if now Congress passes a criminal statute, now they've created an active disincentive to people running. So in you could see from their point of view that even though it was being executed, so you know, in a self-executing way, they might have felt that that's not enough and that they yeah. wanted to add a criminal penalty so that more people would so to, to help deal with it, not just to create it so that you you might run and you might get you might win, but then you could get thrown off. Um, but to make it so that okay, you actually shouldn't do it because if you do, we're gonna put you in jail. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, the, the- the, the fact that there's a statute just means that you're enforcing it maybe even more effectively, but it doesn't at all say the 14th Amendment is a dead letter without the statute. And contrarywise, when the grant administration is enforcing the thing without a statute, that's just decisive evidence that at least Ulysses S. Grant, the guy that the American people voted for right after voting for the 14th Amendment, that he thought he didn't need a statute. And that's that's just like proof positive. And, 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 and he ta- is U.S. Grant. And to take it a step further, those people that were disqualified um, didn't then challenge that in court successfully, correct? Good good point. And, yes. And after all, if Griffith's case was such an important precedent, then you would think that that would have carried them, you know, that carried them through, you know, that they would have been successful if indeed that were binding precedent or generally recognized precedent or that people took it seriously or whatever. But but then why was it that, that these challenges didn't take place or if they took place, they were unsuccessful? So I th- and, rem- and remember, Chase himself says all sorts of contradictory things in other cases. And he's not dead yet. He's still around till 1872 or, or so because he runs for president in 1872. So he yes. himself, you know, so I, I don't know. I haven't read anything about this, but... Um, I mean, wh- why has this argument not been made? It seems obvious. Is it a, a flawed argument? It's, it's so, so many things, so many rabbit holes, so little time. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So any other comments on General Mukasey's answers there about uh, uh, about Griffith's case or anything else? No, I think he's going to come back to it. There may be another clip on okay. this. Let's see. That 
you know, so the, the way the debate went was, so there was a question, there was an answer, then there was a, a response to the answer, then there was another question, and then first you get the response to the previous answer <laughs> before you get to the actual. So, so there are, you are, we are going to come back to this, and I think in some other way. Does it make sense for this section three to be self-executing or not? Michael? No, I don't think it does. And um, I a couple of reasons. Number one, um, there is a the law. I think recognizes a distinction between uh, provisions, both of the Constitution and of statutes, uh, that serve as a shield and those that serve as a sword. Um, when you have provisions of the sword alluded to by Akil, such as rights of free speech, uh, equal protection, and so on, those are a shield and they are self-executing. When you have a provision like the one that invalidates somebody from serving, that is not self-executing. Um, and um, the, again, an illustration of that is the fact that Congress passed legislation uh, to, to, uh, to carry it into effect. Um, that's not to say that you can't have legislation to enhance the protections um, of uh, uh, provisions of the Constitution that are, that are protective. Uh, 42 sec section 42 uh, title I'm sorry title 42 section 1983 um, provides uh, remedies uh, but again the remedies it provides are used as a sword and therefore you need legislation to carry them into effect absent 1983 it's questionable whether there would be a basis for um, getting remedies of the sort that 1983 guarantees so Andy there wasn't a lot of time as you uh, mentioned in the debate, but wow, that's wrong. Okay, so first of all, he, he talks about swords versus shields, and that's an important it topic, and we've done it in previous podcasts, actually. Our, our audience members um, will recall that I, I identify that as an important point, but that doesn't go to self-execution. What you do need a statute for, congressional statute, is criminal punishment, but keeping someone off the ballot isn't uh, criminally punishing that person. We're not criminally punishing Barack Obama when we say you can't be on the ballot because you've already been a two-term president or George Bush for that matter, W. Bush for that matter. We're not criminally punishing someone who's 34 years old or who's not natural born. So you do need a statute for criminal punishment, okay? But that's different than shields versus swords. And by the way, his brief doesn't talk about shields versus swords at all. And he mentions the statute, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, which provides a federal basis for a lawsuit when, say, for example, cops violate my Fourth Amendment rights. <laughs> but, and this is what I teach every year and what I was hired to teach. It's howlingly wrong, with all due respect, General McKay, to say, oh, without Section 1983, you couldn't do anything because, of course, there was state enforcement through trespass laws and other things of search and seizure rights long before Section 1983. And in fact, there's this thing called Bivens as well when it comes to the federal government, but we won't get into all of that. But on this precise point, do you need, maybe, maybe federal courts might need a congressional statute to get involved in certain ways. That's the whole debate about a case called Bivens. But the idea that state law can't actually, you know, fill a gap or um, take the Constitution seriously without a mother may I congressional permission statute, 
that's preposterous. So let's take 1983. I didn't have time to go into all of that, but no one thinks that 1983 somehow means that states on their own before 1983 or even in the absence of 1983 can't enforce federal constitutional rights against state officers. Of course they can. I've always done it. Okay, well, let's, for our audience members that don't, aren't familiar with 1983, so what, is it, what, is, what does it say? What is he talking about? That when state officials violate your federal constitutional rights, you can go to court and get damages. And that's great. I'm, I'm happy for that. But even without 1983, no one has ever thought that state law couldn't provide for damages when state officials violate federal constitutional rights. Of course, they can and always have. Give me an example of a, of a case where that might be. Uh, the cop comes into my house unreasonably without a warrant because he doesn't like me because he's seen, you know, this um, Harvard law debate and he's a Trump guy. And so he doesn't like me. So he comes into my house and he roughs me up. He's a state cop. Well, of course I can use state law to sue him. I can use, for example, state trespass law. And then he says, oh, I've been authorized by the state government to do this. And I say, no, you haven't, because the Constitution prohibits the state from authorizing you to do this unreasonable search or seizure. You came to my house and you you strip searched me in front of my kids and you went through my personal papers and, and all the rest. So, of course, we have state enforcement of the Constitution, even without federal statutes, all the time. That's Fed Courts 101. And I teach literally Fed Courts 101. So why do we need 1983 if that's the case? Well, let's take, for example, trespass law. Maybe under trespass law, a given state might say, oh, if you open the door to an officer, you've waived your right to sue in, in trespass, okay? And that makes sense if I let you in as a private person. It seems really outrageous that I invite you in, let you in, and then try to sue you as a trespasser. It might be different, of course, if I'm letting you in because you're a state official with a badge claiming a right to, to enter under, under color of law. But 1983 is a, a safety net, a backstop, just like we were talking about before. It might enforce things more efficiently and effectively than a patchwork of state law might. It's just the argument that you made earlier, Andy. Right. So the fact that 19, well, that was kind of what I was getting at with my question. So, so the, the fact <laughs> yeah, that, Oh, I, I forgot. Now you're the law professor and I'm the student and I finally figured out exactly what the law professor is trying to no, tell no, me. No, yes, no, no, good. That's not what I, that's not what I meant. <laughs> no, but you're I, right. Um, okay. Yeah. But just, you know, for our audience, so, so that um, earlier we were saying, well, you, uh, Congress passed a statute, and General McKenzie is saying this is proof that it wasn't self-executing. No, it's additional, you know, uh, yeah. belt and suspenders. Right. Yeah, and there might be cases where where it where it's helpful. Um, yes, but that doesn't mean that nothing availed, you know, bef before that. Okay, right. All right, very very good. So you've dismissed that argument. So this this sword and and shield business, you find that to be an unpersuasive. If indeed using disqualifying someone uh, from being on the ballot under Section Three is using the Constitution as a sword, then so is disqualifying someone for being over thirty five under thirty five, using it as a sword to disqualify. And if that no one says that you need a statute about 
you know, 35, that that's obviously self-executing. Um, so why would this not be, so this sword and, sh- is that, a, is that right? I mean, cause this sword and shield distinction seems, uh, you know, made up in a way. You're absolutely right. It's not made up in general, but in this context, it, it's really beside the point. Okay. Let's move on. Um, all right. And uh, so now there was some discussion about what amounts to a discussion of our 50-state solution, uh, another point, important point in our brief. So let's get to that question. The thing that is really dividing a lot of people is really the ultimate question, whether he engaged in insurrection or rebellion, whether Trump um, actually did that. And ultimately, that substantive decision is what this is all about at the end of the day. And so who is going to get to decide and how are they going to get to decide that an insurrection or a rebellion was engaged in by Donald Trump? Who is the proper body to decide that? And also, what is the procedure that should be used to decide that? It's not like it just happens in a flash that we all know that he engaged in insurrection and it's just a fact. Something has to happen, right, for it to be known and decided and established that he engaged in an insurrection or rebellion. Where is that going to happen and how? So, um, again, even before Congress passed legislation, the Grant administration in a whole bunch of places enforced it without a statute. Um, uh, and they actually refused to let people who had been elected, who had won election, take office um, in a whole bunch of places, including uh, Virginia and Georgia. Since then, um, there have been all sorts of ways in which election um, eligibility rules have been enforced, um, and not just this one, all sorts of other election uh, disability rules. So you have to be natural born. There was a case that involved actually out of Colorado, Neil Gorsuch. And he actually said, um, well, I'll actually read you what he said. He said, you know, Colorado, a, a state's legitimate, this is a case called Hassan versus Colorado, 10th Circuit, 2012. It's only a paragraph long. I'm not cherry picking the quote. This is Gorsuch J. A state's legitimate interest in protecting the integrity and practical functioning of the political process permits it to exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. Now, that was a guy who wasn't natural born, but um, different states are going to do it differently. I recall this in the brief, the 50-state solution. Some will enforce this at the primary stage. Some will enforce this at the general election stage. And these are still just about ballot access. People can write in T-R-U-M-P. Some will enforce it when they count Elect, uh, the, the vote on election day. Some, um, actually at the end of the day, the Congress plays a role, not the vice president, whose role is basically ceremonial, but on the January 6th equivalent, Congress actually makes determinations of who's eligible. Here's a guy who wasn't eligible. His name is Horace Greeley, and he was dead at the time the Electoral College met, and a bunch of electors voted for him anyway, um, and the Congress said, we're not counting that. That's 1873. In 1864, Congress said, we're not counting electoral votes from certain jurisdictions that claim to be states, Louisiana, Arkansas, otherwise. So actually, um, election law does this pretty pervasively. It, it polices you know, all sorts of eligibility rules in all sorts of ways, 50 states. Ultimately, state Supreme Courts play a very important role in the process. Moore versus Harper, a Supreme Court's recent decision, is quite important in this regard. Should we be disturbed by the idea of all 50 states going at it and 
having all different standards of what how they're even interpreting so, insurrection or rebellion. Welcome, welcome to the Electoral College. Let's just remember that um, um, Ross Perot wasn't necessarily on the ballot in all fifty states, and by the same rules, you know, or George Wallace, um, uh, or. Um, uh, uh, Ralph Nader, um, for that matter. Different states do things differently. States, technically, this is in our brief as well, you know, could say, we're gonna pick state legislatures, we're gonna pick the presidential electors ourselves, if that's permitted by the state constitution, as construed ultimately by the state Supreme Court under Moore right. versus Harper, they can do all sorts of stuff. In this case, we had a proceeding was a juridical proceeding in Colorado. There were findings of facts, hundreds of paragraphs. Um, both sides were allowed to you know, uh, participate, and that's how Colorado does it. That's how it does it if there's a question of whether someone is 35 or has already served two terms or is ineligible because they're a senator or representative or natural born. So Michael, what do, what do you think of that? I mean, do you have any quibbles with Colorado's process? I have lots of quibbles with Colorado's process. Um, Colorado's process, um, the uh, approaches the, the standard that used to be the standard for disqualifying counsel in criminal cases. If counsel in criminal cases was inadequate to the point of making a farce and mockery of the proceeding, um, then, then counsel was disqualified. That proceeding was based in substantial part on the work of the January 6th committee. Um, which the um, judge swallowed whole. Um, she made, yes, there were hundreds and hundreds of paragraphs. It was a great deal of typing um, in, <laughs> in that opinion. Um, there was a whole lot of substance, not a whole lot of substance of the sort that um, judges and lawyers honor um, as a decision of a trial court. Um, I understand that it was a, it was a, it was, it was a lot of effort put into it, um, and it was a great rhetorical device. Uh, but as a, as, as, a, as a court's findings of fact, it's laughable. Right, and is that what we're going to see in all the other states? If, if I, I don't believe we will, because I think the Supreme Court will be the final arbiter, and should be the final arbiter, of what Section 3 means. I think Supreme Court law and precedent, going back to Cohen's versus Virginia and other, and other cases, says essentially the Supreme Court has the last word. And frankly, it stuns me to see um, the 14th Amendment, which was meant in the large, talk about large principles, to limit the powers of the states being used as the occasion for scattering uh, authority among 50 states to decide on 50 separate bases um, who's going to be on the, on the ballot and who isn't. The fact that Ross Perot and, and was, was not on the ballot in all, in all states meant he, he simply didn't qualify. Um, that's a whole different story from, from this, where, which involves a disqualification of somebody who uh, uh, would presumably qualify under, under right. the laws of all states. So what presumably so qualifies. No, that's the issue. Well, Michael, what, what would be, for you, what, what would count as a satisfactory procedure um, and a satisfactory body? Is it just Congress? I mean, what, what is the, what, what's, what's your standard? My standard is conviction under the statute that charges of insurrection, under the Insurrection Act. Um, in a real proceeding, in a real trial, um, in which witnesses testify and are cross-examined, um, in which 
that that's that's the standard. So I, nothing I, I, short of nothing short of a criminal federal criminal conviction on that's, this question. Yeah. Okay. Your comments. So again, so many things that we couldn't go into in the debate. Michael McKenzie is not just a former United States Attorney General. He's a former federal trial judge, very distinguished former federal trial judge. And what he said was actually, I think, kind of shocking. This Colorado had a trial judge who heard days worth of testimony on both sides. Donald Trump got to make his case, and then she made findings. That's what judges are allowed to do in bench trials. And his poo-pooing of that, I thought, was really problematic. Well, plus, um, if it were so disgraceful, where, why didn't the Colorado Supreme Court uh, you know, dismiss it? Just so. And in general, our legal system is based on the idea that findings of fact by the trier of fact are given very great deference, as long as there's a basis to uh, support them, and there surely is here. Well, he did make reference to the January 6th hearings. Um, uh, that, yeah, that and, and a judge is allowed to bring in things from other proceedings if the judge finds them persuasive. For example, let's imagine there's a drug company, and it is sued in one case, and it loses. A judge in another case is permitted to sort of take some of those findings uh, from the first case if the judge finds them persuasive and, and use them in the second case. That's, that happens all the time. Well, I think he, uh, I mean, I'm with you on this, but just to be fair, I think that he was implying that, well, maybe there wasn't, you know, cross-examination of witnesses in the January 6th uh, hearings in the same way that you would have it in a trial. So therefore it's and, not and, quite and the same that's thing. Why tr and, and, but Trump ha had every opportunity in both proceedings to push back. If he chose not to, that's on him. Mm -hmm. Okay. Lawyers all the time choose, you know, not to challenge various things. But as long as they have the right to do so, both in the January 6th hearings and in the Colorado hearings, then they run the risk if they choose not to vigorously press certain uh, claims, they run the risk of having those issues uh, resolved against them, those factual, disputed factual questions. So two other things that he said that I wanted to ask you about. One is he said that that the Fourteenth Amendment scattered is scattered the responsibility for elections to fifty states, and he objected well, to that. It's well, of course, the Constitution itself does. It's right. called the Electoral College. And remember, here states aren't ignoring Section Three; they're vigorously enforcing it. And that's totally different. No one thinks that the Constitution, you know, can be only be enforced by the federal government. Everyone takes an oath. This is all about oaths. And everyone under the Supremacy Clause takes an oath. And, and in fact, you're obliged if you're a state official to enforce the Constitution as best you understand it. And in many cases, self-executingly, you know, whether sword or shield. Judge Mukasey, General Mukasey, read the Supremacy Clause with all due respect. And I promise you, this is what I teach in Fed courts. Cohen versus Virginia is a companion case to Martin versus Hunter's Lessee. This is what I got tenure on. This is what I was hired uh, on the basis of it, Yale Law School. I teach these cases every year. And general, they have nothing to... If, if a student invoked Cohen's the way you just did, let's just say in an exam, I would not give that student a high grade. 
And I, and to repeat, this is technical Fed juror stuff. I'm not going to go into all the details, but what he said is wrong. And if you want more details on that, this is just the mistake that the Bush versus Gore court made and that the Moore versus Harper court, you know, disavowed in Moore versus Harper, treating certain issues because state and federal law are implicated together, treating that as a basis for disregarding sensible ruling on state law or in the, or facts rendered by a proper state tribunal. 14th Amendment Section 3 is not actually about the right of Donald Trump to be on the ballot. If it had been about that, then you say, oh, we got to be really, really scrupulous, we federal judges, if if a state is kicking someone off the ballot, because in this alternative universe, 14.3 is all about your right to be on the ballot. But that's not what 14.3 is about. It's not about your right to be on a ballot when states are trying to kick you off. It's your ineligibility to be on the ballot if you've done certain things. And then he had, this was astonishing to me says oh well ross perot that was different because you know some states kept him off the ballot because he didn't you know qualify you know maybe because he didn't have enough signatures or or all the rest and at that point if the audience actually wants to look at the um the, the youtube video i'm actually pointing to the far wall where the language of the 14th amendment is up on a projection screen because saying that's the question here whether he's disqualified it was astonishing he said oh well you could keep ross perot off the ballot in some states and not others if he didn't qualify for the ballot that's the whole issue here whether you're disqualified and different states have different ways of cashing that out yeah i think that um what you just said is something which hasn't really been discussed that much, but I think that there, some people have an intuition that that Trump has a right to be on the ballot, and this is infringing that right. And you're saying, you know, that, and perhaps that you could infringe it, you know, but if you're doing so, you have to have some type of proceeding as if you were thinking about putting him in jail or something like that. He's not being kept off the ballot, for example, because he's female or black or Jewish, those would raise issues under First Amendment and the 15th Amendment and the 19th Amendment. But if you're kept off the ballot because you're, you've already served two terms as president, because you're not natural born, because you're not 35 years old, you're kept off the ballot because you actually you know, aren't allowed to be on the ballot, much less you know, that your um, right to be on the ballot has been violated. Now, the just getting back to this question about the 14th Amendment scattering responsibility, as he put it. This is something I've read about uh, people talking about in other contexts recently. The notion that the 14th Amendment would, people have said things like, it would never be construed as conferring power upon the states. In fact, it was all about protecting, you know, the, the, the federal government or the people from misbehavior on the part of the states. And therefore, um, to, to delegate the, the, the notion that the people in the, in the South, let's say, would be determining uh, state by state who can and can't be on ballots is the last thing that the framers of the 14th Amendment would want to do because they didn't trust states. That's, why, that's what was going on with the 14th That's the argument that, that he's making, I think. Right. And, but it's a silly argument because, as I explained, the 14th Amendment, for example, let's say, says you've got to treat blacks equally. That, that creates 
power or it recognizes power and indeed a duty of states to enforce that um, racial equality idea. Or 14th Amendment says, of course, you have to protect freedom of speech and of the press. We call that incorporation or free exercise of religion. That creates a duty and presupposes a power to enforce all of that. The idea that somehow the federal constitution can only be enforced by the federal government is is wrong. And that's true even when the constitution imposes certain restrictions on states. In fact, it, it, it expects the states to actually enforce those restrictions. And the restriction here is you can't put someone in office, in state office, for example, if they're an oath-breaking insurrectionist. You just can't do that. Forget the presidency. You can't do that for dog catcher. Okay, so let's just for a moment uh, take a short break to uh, outline for our listeners that are hoping to gain continuing legal education credit from listening to this podcast, how they would do it. So as in past episodes, you would visit the uh, website of the New Jersey State Bar Association. In this case, it's podcast.njsba.com. You'd be asked for some information, and then you enter a code, and the code this week is executive, executive, and that's not case-sensitive. And then you proceed to to fill out the, the rest of the form, and you'll receive your credit if you are from if you are a member of the bar in New Jersey, New York, or Pennsylvania, and if you're in any of the other states, uh, you can, in most cases, uh, gain credit through reciprocity. Uh, just contact your state bar association for that. But you'll still need the code, which is executive, for this week. Thank you to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering with us on this. Okay, now we, let's talk a little bit about the uh, important episode that you read about in the brief that General Mukasey and his colleagues have submitted an amicus brief to the Supreme Court. So what uh, what's involved here, Akhil? What's the big news? At page 22 of the brief by... Former Attorneys General Edmund Meese III, Michael B. Mukasey, and William P. Barr, along with law professor Stephen Calabresi and Gary Lawson, the following proposition is asserted. It's actually, a, a Andy, um, a, a page of the brief, page 22, when it just coincidentally, the brief cites Akhil Ridamar, an article, The Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment uh, from the, a 1992 Yale Law Journal. But, but here's what is said 50 words later at page 22 of this brief. One leading House Republican, Representative Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania, agreed there was a need for Congress to pass implementing legislation because Section 3, quote, will not execute itself, unquote, citing Congressional Globe, 39th Congress, first session, page 2544 from 1866. Now that page of Congressional Globe is a page that I've been familiar with for 30 years. I actually cited to it in that article on that I mentioned, that 1992 Yale Law Journal article. Just to be to, clear here before you get into it, I mean, the argument they're, they're making just is ob obviously they're saying that, th that this quote from Thaddeus Stevens supports their, their assertion that Section 3 is not self-executing. Correct. Two problems. 
first, on that page, Stadia Stevens is not talking about section three. He's talking about section two, which is all about actually congressional apportionment. Um, it's changing the three-fifths clause because now slavery has been abolished. So three-fifths has become five-fifths. And so the Reconstruction Congress need to figure that out. And of course, you need congressional legislation when it comes to congressional apportionment. You're going to need a census and then a congressional law about how many seats each state gets under the new census and all the rest. So first, in that page, Thaddeus Stevens is not talking about Section 3. He's talking about Section 2 and how that won't execute itself for obvious reasons having to do with what Section 2 is about, which is congressional apportionment, which to repeat, requires a congressionally authorized census and a congressional law about how to apportion Congress every 10 years. Even bigger, way worse. Section 3, at the time that Daddy Stevens is uh, talking about this, which is on May 10th, 1866, the version of Section 3 that Thaddeus Stevens could arguably have been referring to was utterly different than the version of Section 3 that later materialized. That version of Section 3 on May 10th at that very page was all about disfranchisement of millions of insurrectionists. And only later that month was that section pulled and a different section substituted, which is the current version, which is not about the disfranchisement of millions of insurrectionists, but the disqualification of a few thousand insurrectionist oath breakers. Okay. Totally different provision. So Thaddeus Stevens could not have been talking about the section three that we now have. And Andy, here's what I wrote in 1992, in the very Yale Law Journal article that they cite at that page, this is footnote 252 of that article. I cite Congressional Globe at 2544, and then I say Section 3 was later amended. Okay, totally different section. Wow. Now, you can say, so what? That seems so technical. No, here's the basic point. If you know anything about the actual drafting of the 14th Amendment as background, you would know this point. It's a really big point that Section 3 in one version was pulled and a very different section was inserted. So so when you actually say that about Thaddeus Stevens and, and you have the dates in, in front of you, it shows you actually are not remotely the master of the the relevant facts and figures, the, the dates, the, the actual story of the drafting of that amendment. I'm going to give you an analogy or two. I'm just to, um, and, and I, and, and I don't want this to be personal, you see, because I'm going to explain how originalism is hard and why this is going to be, why things like this maybe are going to happen more and more unless we take steps to prevent it. And I'll identify what we as a society um, c- can do to eliminate these sorts of of gaffes. So again, I could have I could have done this at the debate, and I didn't. I could have pulled a gotcha. But the analogy would be if someone said the following: you're you're, you're debating baseball with someone who's a, you know, and, and someone says, "Well, you know, of course women can be great baseball players. Look at Babe Ruth, you know." Or you're talking about important presidents over the course of American history, and someone says, 
that John Adams, he's really impressive. He actually won two terms, the first in 1797 to 1801 and the second in 1825 to 1829. You'd say, no, that second one wasn't John Adams. That was his son, John Quincy Adams. They're not the same person at all. You just made a massive mistake. That's the kind of mistake, honestly, that this Thaddeus Stevens gaffe is. In fact, because I know these are all very honorable lawyers and professors, I suspect that they're going to need to actually inform the court of their inadvertent error, and they're relying on it big time. Oh, Thaddeus Stevens thought you that Section 3 required congressional legislation because it won't execute itself. Yeah, so, is he like so, one of 10 people that, that they're citing here or something that makes statements like this? Or No, so, no he's one of t- two. Mm-hmm. And who's the um, other? Not remotely important compared to, to Thaddeus Stevens, who's, who's big time. They, in a different part of their brief, invoke a fellow named McKee uh, on whether presidents are officers or not. And McKee is not remotely part of the real story of how the 14th Amendment is adopted. He's not remotely a player. He's not on the relevant committees. He's a one-term guy that no one ever heard of. The United States Supreme Court has never cited this fellow McKee for any proposition in connection with the 14th Amendment ever. Truthfully, you know, I've spent years studying this stuff. I've ne- I've almost I don't even remember the name McKee. He's he's just, um, not only that, just, but the the on McKee the uh, the draft that he writes that he proposes is never debated even in the committee so, because he's not a player. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's just it's like a someone completely t- irrelevant. Uh, quote. It's utterly irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Which you would know if you had spent years studying the relevant materials. And in fact, I have. That's why, you know, I wrote this early article. It's called The Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment in 1992. It became the second half of a book that I wrote called, in 1998, published called The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. So now we're getting into why this mistake was made. And it's not because these are bad lawyers or arguing in bad faith. This is embarrassing to them and it doesn't help their cause. Before we leave this, uh, before we get into that and and we leave the actual significance of the mistake itself, um, would you say that when you withdraw the Stevens quote entirely, that their argument falls to pieces? Um, That it's it's intrinsic to, to their argument? It's a central pillar of their self, especially, remember, it's a combination. They they have Chase, but I'm saying Chase actually contradicted himself, and he's running for president, and he was opposed to Section 3, and there are all these other problems with Griffin's case. And they say, but who do you have on the other side? You have Ulysses S. Grant, and he supports the 14th Amendment, and he actually does enforce it self-executing in a whole bunch of ways. And this is how we enforce the rest of the Constitution, and especially the rest of the 14th Amendment. We don't require a congressional statute. And this is how we enforce, you know, search and seizure rights and all sorts of other rights against government. Oh, and this is how we enforce all the other ballot access rules, like being 35 years old or um, natural born. And you've got other people in Congress saying explicitly that the word they use is the moment that the 14th Amendment is ratified, it will have immediate effects. So yeah, when you take out this Thaddeus Stevens quote on the one side, and then you look at all the other stuff on the other side, it's pretty one-sided. Mm-hmm. So it really was intrinsic. It was basically the 
their counter, like, well, you we have authorities, well, here's our authority. And then when yeah, you, you take that France, away, then they have no authority, in effect. Right. You know, I, I have Lot Morrill, I have Ulysses S. Grant, I've got William Tecumseh Sherman, you know, and they say, well, we've got Chase, you know. Yeah, but Chase actually is on both sides and and, and convoluted. And they say, oh, we've got Thaddeus Stevens. Thaddeus Stevens is big. He's very important. He's no McKee. Um, he's one of the five or six most important players alongside John Bingham, uh, Sumner, who actually has much less influence than, than Stevens. Stevens is basically the guy who controls the House of Representatives. In fact, he's a um, very, very important political operative. And if he had said this, as they assert, that would be substantial. But he didn't at all. Remember, for two reasons. He's talking about Section 2, not Section 3. And even if he somehow were talking about Section 3, he's talking about a totally different Section 3 that has nothing to do with ballots and disqualification and office holding or anything like that. OMG. And just to just to put a, a pin in it, so the concept of where he's saying, well, this is not self-executing under, you know, and okay, it's not the... It's not the uh, section three that that winds up getting passed. Is it plausible to say that? Well, he wanted to say that that this other draft was not self-executing. Therefore, section three, the same principle would apply to the section three that wound up getting uh, getting passed. Or are they completely different ways of thinking about self-executing? They're totally different because, of course, when it comes to voting and apportionment and the rest, you're going to need all sorts of congressional involvement. That's one point. But Kurt Lash has asserted that Stephen said the same thing about the final version of Section 3. He's wrong on that. And I'm not going to go into all the reasons he's wrong. Mark Graber completely agrees with me about that. But since the Mukasey brief, the attorney general brief, doesn't talk about that, and probably for good reason, because they probably looked at that and said, this isn't actually very you know, uh, strongly supportive. Um, Lash has uh, wildly overstated things here. They, I think, wisely pulled that out. Okay, Akil. So you threw a lot at us there quickly. So let me just take a stab at synthesizing it for myself and and for our audience. So in making an argument in support of their contention that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not self-executing, that a congressional statute is required, um, Mukasey and his colleagues um, quote Representative Thaddeus Stevens, who's a very important source, saying that the provision will not self-execute. And now you've told us that this is a huge gaffe because, first of all, Stevens was talking about Section 2, not Section 3. So the support for their contention about self-execution kind of goes up in smoke, um, just at that. Okay, so, the, but that's not quite the end of the story, you say. Um, beyond that, you say that the fact that they would even claim that it could be Section 3 is worse than simply belying their argument about self-execution, because what you're saying is it shows a deep unfamiliarity with the history, uh, particularly the legislative history of, of Section 3. Now, this is because even if they thought that Stevens was talking about Section 3, which he was, wasn't, um, they still wouldn't have used this quote if they knew the history because the date that Stevens made this statement was prior to the proposal of what we now know of as Section 3. 
So this reveals, you say, that they really are not really students of Section 3, because if they had, they would never have claimed this. Any scholar of Section 3 would be very familiar with this fact, you say. But then, even on top of that, there's an even deeper unfamiliarity with Section 3 that's revealed by this mistake. Because the earlier draft of Section 3, in other words, the draft that was in existence when Thaddeus Stevens spoke about Section 2, okay, but they think he was talking about Section 3. Anyway, the the draft that was uh, on the table at that point was not about disqualification from office. It was about disenfranchisement from voting and what we've talked about disenfranchising millions of voters rather than disqualifying potentially thousands of office holders. And this would change everything you say. Why? Okay. Because as soon as it becomes about voting, it intertwines section three up with section two in a way that's fundamentally different from what we now know as section three. And this has important relevance for the questions of self-execution. So so now you didn't really explain this but in detail, but this is you know my understanding from discussions we've had offline in part. So section two says, uh, in pertinent part, uh, representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, dot, dot, dot. Goes, then goes on to say, when the right to vote, dot, 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 is denied, dot, 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 or in any way abridged, except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced. Okay, so that's what Section 2 says. So, of course, that can't be self-executing. So that's Section 2, because it involves, again, to quote it, apportionment among the states according to their respective numbers, unquote. So that means the census. And Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution says that the actual enumeration shall be made uh, every term of 10 years in such manner as they, meaning Congress, shall by law direct. Okay, so the Constitution specifically requires Congress to pass laws detailing the manner that the census will take place. So it can't be self-executing because they're required to pass laws. And this is similar to what you were saying about how um, you need a if you need a a criminal if you want a criminal statute then you need a law or if you need to spend money you need a law because there are requirements elsewhere in the constitution. Okay, so the entire so I know I realize this is going on for a while, but I want to get it right. Um, so the earlier draft of Section Three, because it would have disenfranchised huge numbers of people, would therefore be completely tied up with Section Two and the census and other laws. So anyone familiar with the earlier draft of Section 3 would understand that questions of self-execution had to do with voting in this manner, and that these considerations were completely removed, or largely removed anyway, uh, when the new Section 3 was drafted and made part of the amendment, which took place well after these statements from Stevens. So in the end, the mistakes kind of pile, pile onto each other here. It was Section 2 not Section 3 that Stevens was talking about. The Section 3 at the time was not the Section 3 that we today know anyway. And that earlier Section 3 differed from today's real Section 3 in ways which made any self-execution argument about the earlier Section 3 completely void 
if Stevens had been making them, which again, he wasn't. So it's hard to think of anything that could be more wrong and which reveals more layers of unfamiliarity with Section 3 and with questions of its self-execution. So that's my summary of what I think you were saying. So the only other thing that they've got, other than Stevens, is on the Senate side, here's what their next sentences are. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lyman Trumbull concurred, publicly explaining that, quote, it, that is, I don't know what the it refers to, provides no means for enforcing itself. Now, that's something that was reported years after the proposal, indeed, long after the ratification of the 14th Amendment, and I haven't tracked that down yet. But even, you know, reading it at face value, it doesn't seem to me very strong at all, especially up against all the other things. And because I got to be blunt, Kurt, you're my student, you know that I love you, and I've helped you in all sorts of ways. You have lost credibility with me because you've said so many outlandish things about office and officer and McKee and all sorts of other things. And this is the problem. When you say things that are not just wrong, but, you know, howlingly wrong, discreditingly wrong, almost disqualifyingly wrong, then you lose the benefit of the doubt on other stuff. It's a real issue. Okay, so now how does this relate to your concept about of difficulty of carrying out principled originalism, sound originalism? In a way, I mean, this seems like it undermines your support of originalism. If it's so hard to do it, yes. then maybe it can't be done reliably in a way that the country can count on to, be, to make good law. Right, so that's why... I- that's why it's better for us to talk about on this podcast because it is complicated than just a gotcha, you know, in a in a in a debate. So let's talk about just very briefly Moore versus Harper because we saw the same thing in Moore versus Harper, a very prominent law firm headed up by um, a very distinguished former public servant, my friend Chuck Cooper high administration in the Reagan administration, just as some of the people who were signing this brief, you know, high officials in Republican administrations. Chuck Cooper, in his firm's brief, referred in Moore versus Harper to the, quote, Pinckney plan, unquote. And I knew because I've been doing this sort of thing ever since I was in law school, you know, probing Thaddeus Stevens on the 14th Amendment and the early drafts of the Constitution at Philadelphia and all the rest, I knew, I've known for ever since I was a law student, that the Pinckney plan is a fraud. It's a fake. Um, this guy, Charles Coachworth Pinckney, submits um, many years after the fact a document that he said he actually proposed to the Philadelphia Convention that looks astonishing like the final version of the Constitution. He's trying to basically steal credit for the Constitution. But it's, it's all a mistake. And anyone who actually, all serious constitutional historians know this. And in fact, if you even read the relevant pages of Ferrand, uh, this document, this uh, collection of materials by Max Ferrand, or Ferrand, uh, a Yale professor, history professor, at the beginning of the 20th century, if you even just look at the pages where he quotes the Pinckney plan. If you read to the end of that section, he actually explains, oh, this is, this is a fake document. Historians have, have debunked it. But Chuck Cooper didn't know that. And, and maybe the lawyers who were working for him. So they cited this thing 
and it was incorrect, and our amicus brief called attention to it. And so here, if you're just looking, you know, just quickly, you know, let's imagine he actually does talk about Section 3, does Stevens, in this larger speech. You might say, oh, well, Section 3, that's Section 3. So it's not a unique problem to this case. But here, this case, because it's such the briefing schedule is so accelerated, is going to be more likely to generate goofs and gaffes like this. But stepping back, here are the broader issues and think in terms of our constitutional ecosystem. And I've got one or two proposed solutions to this. They're long-term solutions to this problem. These are genuinely impressive lawyers acting in consummate good faith. Let me stipulate to that. Chuck Cooper and these attorneys general and my friends, Steve Calabresi and Gary Lawson. Okay, so here are the problems. One, when you have a very abbreviated briefing schedule and election law sometimes re requires that. So this is, this is like the perfect storm. Two, when you're dealing with a, not just a constitutional provision, but one that really doesn't have a lot of recent case law or even older case law, because if you have case law, then there's been time for generations of lawyers and scholars to react to this, to maybe correct it. Bush versus Gore said a lot of wrong things. Oh, and Akil responded immediately after Bush versus Gore, and then 10 years after Bush versus Gore in a lecture they gave at the University of Florida, and then again in the Supreme Court review a year before Moore versus Harper. But if you don't have cases, I remember in our third episode, I think, ever, I went after the faithless elector case, the Chiafalo case. So when you actually have the Supreme Court that's weighed in, even if it's gotten it wrong, scholars can have time to react to it. And our audience will know, I think Chiafalo got it way wrong and Bush versus Gore got it way wrong. But when you're dealing with not just a constitutional provision, but one that doesn't have a lot of case law and therefore might not have generated a lot of scholarly re response, okay, there's, there's that. And then you have the fact that most lawyers are not trained as historians at all. And they may, that may not even be their temperament. And they're not trained to produce legal history. They may not even be well-trained to you know, properly consume legal history, both the primary source materials and the secondary literature. Oh, and you've got two more problems. A typical case, just you know, facts arise in the world. And there may be a bunch of different legal issues that are implicated by that case. What are the odds that you're going to actually be an expert originalist about all the different aspects of the case? So one aspect of the current case is about the words office and officers. And some of that is relevant to what the founders said about officers and officers. That another part of it is, well, what did the Reconstruction generation think about officers and officers? Well, those are two different sets of materials that you have to master. You know, the founding vision and, and a Reconstruction vision, you know, some of the things are coming from Article 2, some from the 14th Amendment. That's really hard. So Michael Mukasey actually knows some stuff about officer office because there are all sorts of memos that I'm sure he read as attorney general implicating all this, but I don't think he actually has studied 14th Amendment Section 3. And many people know stuff about 14th Amendment Section 1. They haven't studied 14th Amendment Section 3. Remember when we had our friends Jack Balkin and Cy Prakash on about 14th Amendment Section 4, I confessed. I said, you know, 
I've studied a lot about the 14th Amendment. This is the one provision that I don't know so well. I actually said I do know something about 14th Amendment Section 1, incorporation of the Bill of Rights and other things. I actually have thought a lot about 14th Amendment Section 2 and have written about it, 14th Amendment Section 5. I actually know some stuff about 14th Amendment Section 3. But wow. So what are the odds that you're going to know something about all the relevant originalist issues of the case? And then there's one final complexity, Andy. Yes. Well, um, before we get to that, I think some of the things that you that you brought up here uh, raise the question about corrective mechanisms in the in the academy, um, or or in the legal world um, beyond just the academy. So you write a book, and the book is out there for twenty years, and then this case comes along. So during those twenty years, there's been an opportunity for people to comment on the book, correct it. You can come correct it yourself. You do more research. You write another book. Maybe you learn something more about it, so that there, there is time for correction. Andy, in this podcast, when we've made mistakes, we've tried to correct the record in our accompanying website. That website is not just the website for this podcast, but for my scholarship more generally. And there's this whole section called errata, where anytime I find a mistake, at least in the, in the most recent book, I try to immediately correct it. It's a real problem. How do you, how do you pull back something in a book in the medical literature fine you know the the journal can uh, is 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 continuously publishing journal of, of uh, the American Medical Association JAMA or New England Journal of Medicine or the Lancet well every you know few weeks or few months they have a new um, issue and they can issue corrections well a book doesn't work that way we try in our website to list all the errata that we've discovered in my new book i have at least two places in my endnote, where I correct mistakes I had in my earlier book, and in one I uh, actually have, I say, misquoted in Amar the words that made us at this page, oops, you know, exclamation point. And in another thing I said, I originally thought that the three-fifths clause meant that uh, without the three-fifths clause, Adams would have won the presidency by four electoral votes. I now think it's closer to two. So I try to correct myself. I think that's a good practice. The best practice would be to try to, you know, for each author to have like an errata page or something and, and just put that up for the world so that anyone citing an author could, in a book or something, could just as the last step, you know, check the errata page to see if there's any, you know, retraction or correction. The possibility of error is general, and I'm sure I've made awesome mistakes that I myself haven't caught. Mm -hmm. And my claim here isn't, you know, just about error. It's this is such a big mistake that it really calls into question whether, you know, they're masters of the thing. The final point that I was going to make about that is just about the nature of legal practice. Legal practice occurs in teams. Judges rarely write the opinion themselves, justices, and they rely on their law clerks. Our audience has heard that I have a team of research assistants that I rely on. Briefs are rarely written by one person because there are many issues and you divide up the issues and different people tackle different issues and you're kind of counting on um, other people on your team to get their part of the brief right, but you're signing your name on it as the senior partner. It turns out on this particular case, Trump v. Anderson, truthfully, I wrote almost all of the first draft of the, the brief because I had actually just coincidentally studied over the course of many years almost all the aspects of the issue. I first wrote about office and officer in 1995. 
And I wrote about Section 3 being modified in 1992. It just turns out, somewhat coincidentally, that a lot of the really interesting issues of first impression in this case are things that I had studied, in part because I'm interested in all these little wrinkles, these these quirky things that I thought, well, this will probably never come up, but you know, how should we think about it anyway? Now, what's my long-term solution to these problems? Because originalism is going to present these problems probably more than if we're just if judges are just trying to look at recent cases, because they're the authors of these recent cases themselves. So here's the problem. To do originalism right, you need to know a lot of history and have some law training um, to understand the legal significance of the historical evidence. Ideally, you need to be able to consume the relevant scholarly materials, whether produced by lawyers or political scientists or political philosophers or historians, and maybe even produce some of the, the relevant scholarly materials yourself. So let's just think about who can do this. So let's take our great public servants outside the judiciary, someone like Michael Mukasey, an attorney general. Okay, he's got actually a whole bunch of lawyers working under him in the Justice Department, and he also has access probably to OLC, Office of Legal Counsel memos and the rest. And, and these guys actually have some time to think about things in advance. These are some of our very best lawyers who work at places like the Office of Legal Counsel. They have a scholarly bent. Many of them go on to become scholars. Uh, let's take the great Cass Sunstein, for example, who as a young lawyer worked in the office of legal counsel and then later became a professor. So you got really smart people and they have some time to think about these issues and, and kind of um, uh, write them up, but they are going to have a slight institutional bias. They work for the president. And so they're going to actually maybe come up with stuff. It, it's not just that they're mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes, but their mistakes are likely to be asymmetric. They're going to be pro-presidential mistakes saying, Oh, the present isn't bound by this or that or the other thing. Oh, the present, everyone else counts. There's some restriction on offices or officers. Oh, that applies to everyone else, but not the president. And, and there are cases that say things slightly like that, although not in the same context as 14th Amendment Section 3, rather a very different context about statutes, statutory enactments, a, a case called um, Franklin versus Massachusetts. So I understand why Michael Mukasey, you know, might actually be consuming certain pieces of paper, memos and the like, uh, point him in a certain direction. But those smart lawyers in the Office of Legal Counsel have an institutional bias. So there's that. Now, what about the justices themselves? Well, they have to hear a lot of cases or the lower court, um, the federal court um, or state judges for that matter. They have to hear a lot of cases about a lot of different issues. They're generalists. They can't become experts on on everything. Okay, so the judges and the justices can't quite do this on their own. Now, at their best, they could be intelligent consumers of other people who do produce this, but then they're going to have to figure out who's likely to produce it reliably. And so I said, OLC is going to have a bias, and their own law clerks, they're only there for a year. They can't really do this in general. What about the lawyers? Well, the lawyers typically, they have clients and they will respond if there's a client need, um, and, but they want to argue it in, in favor of the client. They, they, they don't have a kind of detachment that a judge or a justice ideally might have. Okay, so Andy, I can just imagine what you're going to say, Andy. Okay, get to the point, Akil. You're talking about who it can't be. It can't be this, can't be that. Can't be. So who can it be? I think 
we're left with scholars. And it's not that we're perfect, it's just that we're less imperfect than the Office of Legal Counsel and Judges or Justices or Law Clerks or Lawyers. Now, what kind of scholars? Okay, well, they're historians, but they don't know the law and they don't know the significance of this historical piece of evidence or that one, the legal significance of this historical piece of evidence or that one. Um, and unfortunately, and Andy, this is what we learned in our last ever scholar uh, adventure down in Florida, people like Gordon Wood in history departments are few and far between. Young people in history departments are much less interested than in a previous generation in studying law, government, statutes, judicial decisions, and the like. Many fewer of them are interested in doing that. They're more focused on bottom-up social history about daily lives of ordinary people, which is very important, but that's not going to really help me that much on 14th Amendment Section 3. So I think that's we're left with the law professors. Now, most of them don't learn how to do this in law school, and even if they know how to do it, unfortunately, many of the people in law school aren't interested in doing this, but they could do this. They have the time, they have the candle power, and they could be doing a genuinely useful service to all of us. Now, here's what they're going to have to do. They're going to actually have to check their politics at the door because they will be most useful to the judges if they can just try to write pure scholarship, ideally behind a veil of ignorance before they even know if it's going to help you know, Trump or Biden or red or blue or whatever. And Andy, that's what I've been trying to do for many years. And Andy, this podcast is part of that. It's trying to actually encourage the next generation of scholars, the the students out there, because if originalism is seriously, we need a whole bunch of originalists of all sorts of different ideological persuasions and and interests. Some of them are going to really specialize in this or that or the other thing. Oh, I'm a 14th Amendment guy. I'm a 14th Amendment Section 3 person. And others are going to actually try to consume the the scholarship produced by these specialists and and try to draw uh, broader connections and, and generalize. I try to do a little bit of both. I write about the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment and the Sixth Amendment in very fine-grained ways. And they try to pull the camera back and write about criminal procedure or the Bill of Rights or the Constitution as a whole, whether textually or methodologically or chronologically. We need both. We desperately need both. And it's not that we're perfect, but we're, you know, we scholars are arguably the least imperfect. If we're really serious about preserving preserving constitutional meaning, we can't just rely on the occasional amateur genius of an Abraham Lincoln, of a Hugo Black to save us. Well, I mean, this could be taken as an argument that we are not ready to, as a, to, to be, for the court to be practicing originalism because you don't have that, this infrastructure of scholars um, at various levels whether it's the the fine-grained ones that are drilling down on particular provisions or concepts or the overall geniuses that that synthesize the overall synthesizers let's say that take that and generate grander theories if we've just got a couple of people and that's and if you think that's not enough then maybe it's not a legitimate thing to be doing it's it's kind of like practicing medicine you know when you don't have the no, enough knowledge you know to 
you, know, you might be able to start your, your treatment, but you can't finish it or something like that. And then if that's the case, maybe you shouldn't be undertaking it in the first place. So that, um, and that's why, you know, you've said, well, you know, this person, this judge or that judge is a precedent oriented judge and all they know is the cases and, but it's possible to know the cases. Okay. So maybe knowing 90% of the cases is better than knowing 40% of the originalism or something like that. Maybe, but here's the, the argument on the other side, and it's central. It's how we begin our amicus brief, Andy, and how we end our amicus brief. This case, Trump v. Anderson, is all about the oath. And the oath is not to the precedents. It's to the Constitution. And then our la- that's how we begin, and we end by saying, what about democracy? And we say, well, the kind of democracy that actually this society rests on is a constitutional democracy. It was the last question I got asked at Harvard. What about democracy? And I say, well, if, if by democracy we mean one person, one vote, then Hillary Clinton should have been president and not Donald Trump. Donald Trump was elected by a 50-state solution in which actually it mattered where the votes came from. And if it's, if it's pure democracy, why can't I vote for Barack Obama? Because I actually still like him, but he's, the Constitution says I can't because he's already served two terms. What if I want to vote for someone who's 34 or not natural born or a senator representative? So the vision, the, the only thing that we have, Andy, that pulls us together as a nation, that unites us, it's, it's not democratic theory because why does Wyoming count equally than, than California? It makes no sense to me as a matter of democratic theory. The only thing we have is the Constitution and the theory of democracy that it embodies. And if this is what you're taking your oath to, you have to, I, I think, at least try to do your best to honor that. Now, here's what that does mean, um, my uh, friends on the court, and you, many of you are my friends, and, and as an amicus, I, I'm presenting myself as a friend of the court. I just, I just actually stolen your summer vacations, because I'm saying, actually, your summer vacations should be spent reading and serious scholarship about the Constitution. One of the things that I actually genuinely admire about Clarence Thomas is I think he does try to do that. I think Sam Alito does try to do that. I think Brett Kavanaugh does try to do that. I think Tenji Brown Jackson is trying to do that. And the rest of you, if you didn't want to do that, if you didn't think you could do that, then you shouldn't have signed up for this job because that was the oath to basically take the Constitution seriously and taking the Constitution seriously requires you to understand at least at a minimum what the big idea was behind every constitutional provision. Now, that's what you have to do. What do we have to do as as scholars? We have to help you do this very difficult job. And I say, you know, that's what I have been trying to do in my scholarship and in this podcast and what I'm urging my fellow academics to do. Because otherwise, we're going to come apart as a nation because the only thing we have in common is our constitution and the constitutional story behind it, and that's called originalism. One final way to put the point. Here's what happens when you don't take the constitution seriously. Let's look at the, the, the history of the court and the 14th Amendment. You basically say, oh, segregation seems sensible. Some people won't like it. You know, why rock the boat? That's Plessy. Oh, you know, why enforce Section 2, which talks about the right to vote, because that's just going to rock the boat? Why apply the Bill of Rights against the states? You know, why protect the rights of indigent defendants in criminal cases? Why protect the rights of gun owners? We have seen the court again and again, actually, 
disregard the 14th Amendment's central commitments. And the precedents authorized that at a certain point, precedents like Plessy. And in the short run, that seems the easier course. You can do it. But in the long run, I think it's a big mistake. And now that the court is making this pivot to originalism, it's a good opportunity for us to think about the major restructuring of the legal ecosystem that I think will be required to make this neo-originalist project a success. You know, in the uh, political science arena, we've heard from Tim Snyder talking about the the perils of disregarding 14th Amendment Section 3. And we've talked in this podcast about Gerard Magliacca has warned us, and we've noted this his observations with approval, the, the things that you just said, that the 14th Amendment as a whole was radical. They knew it was radical, but it was passed by democratic means. Uh, and the, so what that means is that the country saw the need for radical change and, and used the mechanisms available to it to... Uh, put it into effect, but then the court didn't take it seriously and and made these these excuses that it's well, it's not democratic, people don't like it or whatever. And but again, that's unwise. Um, and we have to have some faith in the ultimate democratic backbone of the system uh, and implement it. Andy, just one one point: just you originated this podcast. And you understood that there was a kind of a gaping hole in the ecosystem. Because even if, let's imagine in my wildest dreams that I'm actually able to produce some stuff that might be useful. Well, it means nothing at all unless actually law clerks learn about it and uh, lower court judges and ultimately Supreme Court justices and senators and, and ultimately citizens, okay? So the job of the academy isn't just to produce ideas, you told me way back when, um, light and truth, is to disseminate them. And nowhere is that more important than in a democratic society. You know, ordinary people need to understand the system because we pick presidents every four years. And I want my citizens, fellow citizens, to understand why it is that, for example, they may not be able to vote for Donald Trump even if they want to, you know, and why that was actually just and fair and legal and right. And, and democratic. And not Yes, and not to some kind of coup d'état mm-hmm. just to by bring, the elite. Just to bring this back before we, we finish for today, because we're not going to get to the rest of the debate, but that's okay. Um, we got to the heart of it. To bring this back to the gaffe, okay, and why do we make such a big deal about this gaffe? I mean, from my perspective and listening to you, you know, I hear that it's not that General Mukasey and his colleagues are, are – bad people or motivated by evil or desire to misquote Thaddeus Stevens. But in this case, which is about constitutional provision that hasn't gotten that much scholarly attention over the past century, you know, century and a half that it's been around, in an election law case, which is by its nature time-limited and rushed, the court's hearing this in an expedited you know, manner, in a system where the practitioners are relying on other people to do some of the work for them, and therefore it's harder to maintain accuracy. Where you have a certain level of advocacy, where there might be implicit biases or other types of biases that come to the fore, that in that kind of a situation, it's not surprising that you might see this kind of you know, outrageously 
incorrect assertion uh, that's fundamental to a, to an important brief you know, before the court that may result in the, the need to disavow this publicly, um, you know, before the court to maintain um, their integrity and before the court. Remember, we had Neil Katyal on uh, for two episodes, and he said, you know, if you misrepresent to the court, you know, and you don't, you know, call attention to it yourself, the court will never trust you again. So that, uh, the, you know, that's the, the this gaffe, I think, rises to that level as a, you know, layman, admittedly, um, mm-hmm. seeing it. So anyway, um, all of that says that, yes, we need more research. People need to do these. The, the knowledge has to be available to everyone and has to be available with time to review it, with with time to to modify it, with time for to, for it to gain general acceptance, um, so that when you have to do it in a hurry, you at least have things that you can rely on, and that I think is is a lot of what your point has been. So more on this to come in future episodes, and I hope this wasn't too theoretical, but I think that uh, you know th- it's useful to have brought this specific incident to everyone's attention because it does illuminate this overall question. So until next week, we'll have more. Thank you, Akil. Thank you. Thank you, Andy.